contextual interview you know you're going to find out about the love work play you know you're going to find out about the function of the behavior and you know you're going to realize that the brain processes emotional and physical pain in the same area so if i'm armed with those three things as a clinician send me in coach and we're going to get something done Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast from the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. I am the production editor, Grace Pratt, and I'm joined by all of my co-hosts today. I'm so excited. Gang's all here. And we have a great topic. Listen, I know that I say this every month, but I really thought we'd already done this one. And I went back through all the history and I can't find it. So if you start to get deja vu, let me know. But I swear, I'm pretty sure... I can't believe it, but this is the first time we're talking about this topic. And as usual, it was prompted by recent experience I had in my clinical work. So I'm very excited to be joined by everyone, but I do have an icebreaker question as we're doing our introductions. Uh, on the day that we're recording, which is August 24th, um, it'll be a bit until it comes out, but today is the first day of the pumpkin spice latte for 2023. I don't know if any of you are PSL people. Yeah. I'm personally not, but I do drink a lot of Starbucks, like an embarrassingly <laughs> lot of Starbucks. So I'm curious though, to hear from you, because it is literally the high today in Oklahoma is 106 degrees. And it is so far from fall and autumn and all of those vibes here. It's, it's not cozy. It's the opposite of cozy. Thinking about being cozy just like makes me sweat. So anyway, I'm curious to hear what for you is that moment where it feels like ah, autumn is here? Like what's that spark? Is it the first PSL latte, even if it's 106 degrees or like, what is it for you? So we're going to go around the circle here from my point of view. And next we have Jen Thomas. All right. Yay. Get to go first. <laughs> so hi guys, I'm Jen Thomas, family medicine. I do a little addiction medicine work and IBH director at Morris Hospital in Morris, Illinois, Northern Illinois. So what comes to mind to kick off fall? That's a great question. So I'd probably say in my neck of the woods, the neighborhood where I live is um, a bike ride distance from a fabulous pumpkin farm. I'll put a plug in for Dollinger Pumpkin Farm. Uh, Mrs. Dollinger's on our hospital board. She's fabulous. <laughs> she hires all the teenagers to like uh, do the little fall pumpkin-y stuff in the, in the fall. So my kids and I always joke that we know it's uh, Civil War days in October when we can hear the cannon fire because they do this great battle reenactment. Oh and we, we live pretty close by, so you're the boom. And I mean, they go all in. Like I had a patient that participated and he was a Union soldier and had this whole like theatrical thing. There were horses. It's pretty impressive. I think they still do. I don't know if COVID put a kink in that, but um, that definitely feels like fall when the Dollinger pumpkin farm is in full swing. Go get your kettle corn and cider and all that great stuff so what a great community event I feel pretty <laughs> confident that you're gonna be the only person on our team who says that the cannon fire is the <laughs> kickoff to fall I hope so because that'd be kind of weird if there was somebody else <laughs> that felt that way about cannons so <laughs> I love it next around we have Bridget Beachy Bridget clinical psychologist by trade uh, doing PCBH work and FQHC as far as the I think it's the crisp 
mornings, the crisp air in the morning. So it's been really uh, hot in Washington as well. And there's still this crispness of the air in the morning and at night that exists. And it only comes in a certain way right before the fall. And so uh, there's, and then the other thing that's interesting, this might be along the lines of the cannonball of the smoke in the air. So normally in August into September is when a lot of the uh, forest fires are. So there's like this faint smell of forest fire <laughs> with a little bit of crispness in the air. And you're like, fall is here. That sounds like a candle. That sounds like a candle, Bridget. Not yeah. gunpowder. <laughs> like a little bit of fall, fire, Chris. Yeah. yeah I think like... I smelled that at Bed Baths, uh, not Bed Baths, beyond the, uh, what's that candle? Bath and Body Works. Bath Woo! Body. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a very distinct smell. And it's funny about those associations with those memories because growing up in Ohio and Pennsylvania, we didn't have forest fires. And so it doesn't even, but now like the minute I smell the fires, I'm like, oh, fall's coming. Like it's, even though it's miserable. I love those sensory, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely miserable, and I have positive associations with it because I'm like, falls on this way. There you go. That's exactly what I was asking. Uh, next, we have Neftali Serrano. Hey, everybody. Neftali Serrano, Neftali Serrano. If you can roll your R's, I'm the CEO here at the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. Really happy to be with the team here today. And then fall. So, you know, my birthday is on September 15th. And right around that time, I start experiencing seasonal allergies. And I also start to notice the light because I suffer from some seasonal stuff. So, and I figured this out years ago. So that's the day when I start my light therapy. I start, I pull it out of the attic and I put it on my desk, <laughs> essentially. And that's, that's sad. But that's fall. That's like, okay, fall is here, you know, yeah. even though. Here in North Carolina, it does not feel like fall on September 15th. It feels usually like some form of oppressive heat that, you know, should should not exist in my mind, being a, a northerner, but it's still here. Um, so, yeah, I have to wait. Usually we have to wait another month and a half or so for, for that feeling that you get, Bridget, uh, where you feel the Christmas in the air, because uh, even by Halloween, we're usually sweating in our, in our uh, costumes. That's the tricky thing about living at this latitude. <laughs> Even Halloween, it can be hot or it can be freezing and nobody knows. Uh, but yeah, we for sure have to wait a little bit longer than our northern neighbors here. Uh, we also have with us Monica Harrison. The northern neighbor that is oftentimes yes. snow <laughs> for Halloween. Um, Monica Harrison, licensed clinical social worker, um, work with the AIM Center out of the University of Washington. And I am in the north in Connecticut, where um, I was in the south. It was about going to pumpkin patches. And that was kind of what brought in the fall. Here we are going apple picking, which was very new. And I was like, I don't know why anybody wants to do this, but you go and you like <laughs> Monica, pick the apples, Monica. not the ones on the ground. And Monica, um, it's a, it's, uh, it's a white people thing, Monica. I can guarantee you when my wife, listen, it is. my wife took me <laughs> well, I'm out here. The same thing. I was like, look, why are we going to pick the apples? We have people who can pick them for us and, put and them you just go buy them. Right. Like, let me just go buy a, a barrel of them. But uh, yeah, so we go apple picking. I just go for like the, fun nuance of it get a little apple cider in um yeah. and yeah so i'm i'm out there 
with nice. white people picking apples. Yeah. Um, but but that's the first for me that it's fall when you start to see all the advertisements for the different apple picking and all yeah. of that kind of stuff. Fall is actually my favorite because I love all the fall colors. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is is getting ready to be my favorite season. So yeah. Nice. Good. Do you do anything with the apples? Or are you somebody that likes to? Girl, like, no. <laughs> they just that. sit there sadly and look at it's, you and it's for the to get experience. <laughs> it's not to really go home and take the apples and bacon. I mean, I do love bacon, but I'm not doing all that. Yeah. It's not yeah. for like go home and bacon with the apples. And here I come yeah. with apple pie because apple pie is not my favorite pie. Can you believe that? So, no. what's yeah, your favorite? No, are you a pecan? I like a good mocha pecan. Listen, don't you put no mocha in it, Jen. <gasps> what? Get oh, come down. on. <laughs> no, Jen. So I am originally from New Orleans, um, although okay. you cannot okay. hear that Fair. accent. Um, pecan pie is where it's Straight at. Up, syrup. No, it. no cocoa powder, just the no, syrup. No, just get, All just right. get All into right. it straight. Clearly. like, I don't want no parts of this. <laughs> Clearly, we need to have a pie debate for our November uh, icebreaker, although that might just take the whole episode. I don't know. There's some strong feelings. Brutal. Thank you, Monica. And like I said, I'm Grace Pratt. I am the behavioral medicine faculty at Integris Great Plumes Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, which is why it's still 106 degrees today. For me, I think being in like Big 12 country, it's college football. Um, When I can turn on game day in the morning in the background, and especially, and sometimes this is like, late September, early October, when I can open the windows, let a little cool air in, and, you know, hear just the commentators. I'm not even really listening that closely, but hear the commentators rumbling about college football and making the picks and like that feels like fall to me. Uh, so I am ready for those days to be here. Of course, my children are like, are we still watching football? Why are we watching football? I'm like, I don't know. Go play. We have two TVs. Pick something else. So that feels like it for me. Well, I'm so excited that we are all here. We have a great show topic today. Uh, We have talked about some big picture things a few months ago, and we have some big picture things coming up as well, but we're going to do another very clinical topic today. And in some ways, it's going to be an extension from last month when we talked about trauma. Spoiler alert, that's going to be coming up. Um, But again, it also comes out of a recent clinical experience I had. But before we get to that, Naftali, are there news and notes? Uh, There are, Yes. One is just a, a plug for our integrated care news site. So, and I was just on there uh, earlier today, just perusing and and I'm just so proud of all the work that CFHA members do around so many different areas: family-oriented care, pediatrics, PCBH work. Um, you've got Dave and Bridget's videos on there uh, with all sorts of clinical nuggets. Um, and it's just, just check it out. Go to integratedcarenews.com. Check out the great work that passionate people are doing all across the country in all sorts of different areas to transform healthcare, um, make it more sane. So, um, and the reason I was poking around was because uh, I was just seeing if, if a recent community conversation we had this week was uploaded yet. It's on YouTube, but it hasn't ported over to the site yet. So probably by the time you're listening to it, it'll be on there. But uh, we had a community conversation on mid to late career developmental needs. And it was just such a rich conversation. Uh, Jen, I know you were on there in that conversation as well. And it, if you're, even if you're not in the mid to late career It'd be really, I think, I wish I could have heard people at that stage talk about what that 
feels like, what the different needs are, you know, how to kind of think about it, be intentional around it. Um, it was just a great conversation. Um, so check it out. It'll be on the Integrated Care News uh, site uh, under the videos tab here soon. Uh, the other news note is simply that we have our annual conference in Phoenix, Arizona, obviously. Uh, for those of you out there who are already planning on going, get your hotel rooms because we are running out of hotel room space. So make sure you get those uh, locked in. It's going to be at the Marriott in downtown Phoenix. Really great location. By October, it should be nicer there in Phoenix. Should be a nice, uh, you know, less three-digit type temperature <laughs> experience. And we've just got a great setup. So go to integratedcareconference.com for more information on that. Awesome. Thank you so much, Neftali. So I want to uh, set the stage for our conversation today by presenting a case. Um, I'm going to change some details so, to, you know, to protect the privacy of the patient, of course. But I think it's going to sound familiar whether you saw this patient or not. So uh, I am working in a residency training clinic, working in primary care behavioral health, but they also have hospital patients and outpatient clinic patients. And the hospital service team came to me and they said, hey, we have a patient. We're wondering if you can help us. We're not really sure how much longer she's going to be in the hospital. She came in. Everything is, all of her testing is normal. She keeps having these times where she has, sort of what looks like seizures, but then also like everything's normal. There's no brain activity that matches seizures. All the tests are normal. And we just can't figure out like what might be going on or how we might be able to help her. And of course, there's a bigger picture. There's other comorbidities. There's other thing going on in her diagnosis, like in her problem list. She's young. She's like generally kind of healthy, but kind of not healthy. You know, like there's a long list of problems but also she's kind of generally well appearing. And then another case about two weeks ago, patient is a kid is 10, um, is having vomiting at school and missing so much school. And he throws up all the time. And mom is super concerned about this little boy and why he's missing so much school and why he's always sick. And we're like, well, you know, school's just started. There's a lot of bugs going around, but it turns out this was a pattern last year. And then he was miraculously better over the whole summer. But now he's back to school. Now he's back to vomiting. And we see we can extend out, you know, lots of other similar cases. And I'm sure you can. And a lot of times what we come down to is our medical providers on our team, our nurses, our doctors, our consultants do all the testing, rule everything out. And then they're like, well, I don't know. Maybe you can help them. Sometimes they keep a great attitude and a ton of compassion towards this patient. Other times they come to you with a bit of a roll of their eyes. Like, ah, this person is such a somaticizer as the word gets thrown around. So this is the topic I'm shocked we haven't talked about. Somatic symptoms, somatic presentations, this like really cloudy, nebulous mind, body, physical reaction. And so I wanted to spend some time today talking about it. And also, why the conclusion that we're going to come to is that we are especially adept to support these patients in integrated care. Uh, but before we get to that conclusion, what are some of the things that come to mind? What have been some of your experiences with working with patients that have these either medically unexplained symptoms or sometimes it's functional symptoms or somatic symptoms? There's a lot of language that gets thrown around when we're talking about this. Everyone already knows what I'm going to say, so I'll let somebody else go. 
<laughs> Go, Bridget, give it to us. Just start us off. Don't drink pony up in here. You know it's going to be a contextual interview. You know you're going to find out about the love work play. You know you're going to find out about the function of the behavior. And you know you're going to uh, realize that the brain processes emotional and physical pain in the same area. So if I'm armed with those three things as a clinician, most of the time send me in, coach, and we're going to get something done. I'm not saying it's always cured. I'm not saying that we're always able to necessarily help the patient know that there's a link, but I'm going to be able to do it in a way that's very respectful mm-hmm. uh, and uh, very non-accusatory, not blamey, and armed with those three things, the contextual interview, uh, recognizing that there's always a function to a behavior and behavior you can expand out to like thoughts, emotions, experiences, and then uh, that the brain processes emotional and physical pain in the same area. Uh, so those are the kind of like toolkit that I need as a clinician when I go in. I like that brain processes, what is it, emotion and pain in the same, but that's a great nugget for your medical providers. I don't think we ever get taught that of like how to explain that in a way that's validating and not, well, it's just in your head. <laughs> you know, that's cool. I, I think we could really use some more coaching on um, approaching somatization in that way. That's great. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> I think that hits on something so important, Jen, is like, how do we explain this or language this to patients in an acceptable way? And one of the things that's great about that approach that Bridget's talking about is it doesn't matter if we find a test result that proves what's happening. It doesn't matter if we find a perfect explanation for a biological pathway, because we know that it's both and, right? Like our mind and our body are connected. And someone I feel like a lot of times when I see patients who their doctor is categorizing them in this way, the patient is so sure that there's a physical cause to what's going on. If they could just find that one physical cause, then it could be treated and it could be over. But what we know and what we can help shift a lot of times is that perspective, because even when we do have a very clear pathology or physiology of what's going on, treating treating health is not that simple. Like we are diabetic patients. We know exactly why they're diabetic, but that doesn't mean that it's just a easy fix to cure what's going on with them. Uh, And so to not have to have the why necessarily, but to focus on the how and the difference that it's making can really shift that perspective and help with the language a lot because in our efforts to explain to patients what's going on or to explain why we're not doing certain things, I do think a lot of times we accidentally communicate to them, no, this is a you problem and we can't help you with that. That's where you hear the kind of, it's all in your head. And I don't want to negate kind of society's fix it culture um, that we have that plays a very big part in that too. That then also when you do come in and you try to explain like, welcome, you're living. You mean your mind and your body are connected? Like, hi, welcome, you're living. Um, it's hard for individuals to to understand how their feeling emotionally is bringing out or exacerbating or creating like these physical things that are happening for them because we are very much in a fix it. I have this problem. Give me the medicine. Fix it. Like I just fix it um, without some of the opportunity to be in contextual interview. Let's talk about some of these other things that are happening in your life and how they're impacted and how you're impacted and and all of those pieces. So I don't want to just, because I don't want to negate that we very much are in a uh, fix it, uh, pleasure now, 
uh, am I saying it right? Pleasure now, or you know, like you get your needs met right away, uh, and that is continuing. That hasn't like drawn back any over the years. I've actually seen it kind of rev up more. Um, so that that piece is challenging too. Yeah, I think I had a, a recent experience. Actually, my grandfather passed last week. Uh, my last living grandfather and my mother cared for him uh, for the last couple of years of his life. And it was interesting because I saw in her grief reaction, which we know grief, you know, can it, it's it's a zigzaggy thing, right? It's 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 a very difficult thing to to navigate. But one of the things that I saw come out in her grief reaction, I think, touches on what what we're talking around here are the expectations of medical professionals and of healthcare in general. And so she she got pretty upset at some things and some of it may have been um, you know founded, but some of it was based on she got upset with them from the medical team because she ex basically my father decom my grandfather decompensated very quickly. She expected the medical team to know, exactly what was going on and how it was happening. And I think part of that is because there is, and this is to your point, Monica, that culturally we have expectations around what healthcare can and should do for us. So, you know, in, uh, you know, unconsciously patients come in with these expectations. I have something wrong. If I go to a doctor, they will figure this out. They, they have the knowledge to figure this out. And with these medically unexplained symptoms, much like things as complex as the death process, which is not 100% understood, it's can, there's lots of different things yet in ways that, that we die, not all of, all of which are very pleasant. We really don't know. We don't have that fundamental knowledge. And so what I, what I try to do is remind myself when I'm with a patient and I I try to cue the physician that I'm working with as well around this and say, hey, I, I really don't know. Like that, even that idea of like, it's in your head. How do I know that? Right. How do I know it's not some other process that's going on that we just haven't been able to detail or, or find? Right. So, so you have to go in there with a sense of humility and then help coach the patient towards that humility because ultimately what you're working towards with somatization typically is acceptance of some sort, right? It, it's, it's accept first before you jump to fix, right? And when you do that, then after that, you I think once you get start from a place of acceptance and curiosity, then you can start to think about ways to make life better, even with some of the symptoms you might be experiencing that are unexplained and have a poor poorly understood ideology. But I think even those those of us who get called in uh, by you, Jen, mm -hmm. into the mm -hmm. room to work with the patient week often do come in with that expectation that we're supposed to know. Right. We're supposed to figure it out. And so when we say, oh, well, the doctor said it's not the physical thing, consciously or unconsciously, a lot of us go into the room thinking, well, I know what it is. It's in your head. In other words, we know it's a psychological this dysfunction or or process. Whereas like I coach my friends, no, you don't know. Mm -hmm. That's the point. We don't mm -hmm. know. And so pretending that just because it's not this doesn't mean it is this. That's mm -hmm. just core logic, right? Yeah. No, I was just gonna say that unlearning is what I'm hearing from that. I have to unlearn that impulse of going there and get the right answer and get the right 
pill. I feel like that's so ingrained in you and, you know, allopathic medical school training, if that's the cause effect, you know, question answer. And I love that the humility of we don't know everything. Oh, that's so true. And it takes the pressure off you, right? You don't have to like, feel like you failed if you're like, well, I'm not sure what's going on. But maybe if we bring in some other team members, we can see, you know, how else we can help minimize some of that symptoms and that suffering to help you get more functional. That's, that's great. It's a fallacy, yes. but it affects us as well, right? On the behavioral yeah, side. That's what I was going to say. We have the same thing. Yeah, because you have to go the, in there the and come fallacy, in with a diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. The fallacy is that everything that is known to man exists in the DSM. Uh, yeah. and like, that's ridiculous. Nope. <laughs> nope. Because we don't know. One thing that working in medical education has taught me for the last almost 10 years is because I did, I'd never really been around doctors, around medicine, all that much, except as a patient until I started working as an, an integrated care, I guess more than 10 years now. Oh, Lord. Um, but I was like, you, you guys really don't know. You mean you're still learning so much and it has challenged my assumptions as a person who exists in the world and understanding science and medicine and just to even see the change in growth and development rapidly in the last nine years of my job, but I guess more like 15 years working in healthcare, it blows my mind. It continues to blow my mind. And I think there, I love that what you named as humility, Naftali, that we need to say that we don't know. And also to recognize that that is, it's hard. We want to have an answer. Our patient is coming to us asking for an answer. And so there's a lot of tension in there and a lot of discomfort. They're coming to us for help. We are helpers and we don't have the answer. But that doesn't mean that we don't have help. And I think that's a really important shift for us to make is that we can help without an answer. Oh my gosh, Monica, just put it in the chat. It becomes about us. Uh, and it, yeah, we're making it about us. And we have to be able to sit with the discomfort of not knowing. We have to be able to sit with our patients' expressions of grief of having these symptoms without an answer because there is grief about that. There's anger about that. There's a lot of times denial about that, but that doesn't mean that we can fix it by conjuring some kind of answer out of nowhere that doesn't exist. It, it So it looks different. I think our goals really shift and our goals with patients really shift. I'm curious about if you guys have certain ways that you talk about this or certain ways that you do language it to patients, because I have a few that come to forefront of mine for me, I'm going to list out before I forget them. One of them is to talk about stress or life circumstances exacerbating symptoms or making problems worse, because I feel like that's a lot more acceptable to patients. Usually they can accept, okay, my stress is making this thing worse. I still don't have an answer, but I really believe that there's a core physical, like, answer that we could find. We don't know it, but my stress is making it worse can help give a little bit of a pivot to the argument of why maybe we need to address some stress. Another one is a truism from a favorite colleague of mine that when he's explaining to patients about like physical manifestations of, of emotional difficulties or stress, he talks about the fact that like, of course, our bodies and our minds are linked. Like if he came over and he'll use someone in the room. You know, he'll either use the patient or use like a colleague if there's someone there. And he says, if I came over and whispered your deepest, darkest secret into your ear that you didn't know I knew, 
your face would turn so red. You would be flushed. Your heart rate would go up. Like just the thought you would get panicky. And those are physical reactions. Did anything change in your body? Did anyone touch you? Did any, no, but it's your mind does have an influence over your body. And so just really normalizing that to people can make a big difference. What are some of the things for you guys that you use either language you use with patients or how you explain this? Um, that's been helpful. I, I say I, I want to go ahead, Bridget. Oh, you go. No, you go, Jen. I want to hear. It. No, no, no. I was I was about to just quote somebody else. I don't have anything original. No, so I have to put a plug in for a great resource, Primary Care Psychiatry. I don't know if y'all can see this. Um, Sean Hersevord. This is a handbook that I literally have on my desk in practice every day. And when you said Grace that somatization was the topic, I flipped to that page and was like, oh, <laughs> I got to read up. I do that all the time. There's a great little acronym in here: CareMD, um, CBT, Assess Medical regular visits, empathy, med psych interface, and do no harm. So it's talking about like thorough investigation before you give a diagnosis, regular visits, um, ask about stressors, empathy, med psych interface, educate about the mind-body interaction and avoid unneeded tests and treatments. So that's just a little nugget that I love. I don't know if anybody likes this text, but I recommend it to all my, I don't know if you can see it in the camera, Um, all my colleagues. It's just a great little like evidence-based little, okay, what what should we do? And here's some guideposts that can bake right into integrated care. Um, so I don't know, again, I'm just stealing somebody else's thunder on what helps, but uh, no, I love that. And we will share yeah. that resource in the show cool. notes for sure. Before I forget, right. I want to say that whole regular visits feels opposite a lot of times to what we want to do, because a lot of times yep. these are the patients, again, if it comes about us, yep. we feel uncomfortable. We don't have an answer. Yep. We don't know how to fix it. So we take time schedule and we're like, uh, <laughs> right. like uh, yeah, this person's going to take time. Yep. And so we're like, okay, I'll see you in six months. But like, we need to be seeing them in six weeks, not six months or one month, or we need to be seeing them regularly to get ahead of what's going on. Yep. And I think that's great where you guys as an integrated care team member can help educate the PCP on like, no, this helps you. Like the avoidance strategy with this difficult patient, I don't want to see you. Maybe we can go six months. Is going to hurt you in the long run that if you see them more often, you might actually find you get some with, with them and you're less frustrated. And that's a bit of a like, uh, that can be an uphill uh, battle or a conversation with your primary care teammates to be like, what? That's the opposite of what I'm feeling. I want to avoid. I don't want to like go in there and lean in further. <laughs> but having you guys say, hey, this is how that could help. Oh, that's so great. That's eye opening. Yeah, there's there's just one little quick nuance that I would add to what you said, Grace, which is um, when when I'm doing the mind body connection thing, I'm always couching it in terms of humility, and and an experimental approach, because I don't know that stress is causing their symptoms, right? And I think that is that's one way that I use to validate the patient experience and say. Look, here the reality is that we in healthcare are good at a lot of things, uh, but we're mostly good at treating the things that we know. But there's a whole category of things that relates to the way the body works that we don't know. And it looks like what you're experiencing falls in this category, frustratingly so. So I can't assume, we can't assume that we know what's going on. But we can try some things out. We can try different ways to kind of work with what you're experiencing. So one of the ways that we know the body reacts is under stress, you know, this this stuff happened. Then I go into what you talked about because it 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 loosens the patient from um what is a fundamental pre- present presenting issue with a lot of folks who have 
strong somatization, especially if it is if it is of a psychological ideology. Again, I don't know, but if it is, rigidity is a big piece of that picture. So if you just introduce more rigidity, right? You just give another category for them to kind of face. They'll they'll either do one of two things. One is they will reject it, and then you get a lot of defensiveness in the room. No, it's not in my head. I'm not stressed out. This is not about stress. This is about X, Y, Z, whatever reason they've picked already in their story. Or they will replace that story with the story you gave them, which becomes no better, <laughs> right? Because they're still just stuck in, in psychological rigidity. So having that little bit of that dose of humility and experimental approach and saying, let's try some things based on a hypothesis. When we do hypothesis, we have to be open to what what different things are. And we have to be open to the idea that we might never know. It's yeah, the idea of the might, might never know that I think is sometimes challenging for people. But I love um, the way that Neftali explained that. Um, I will be honest, I typically... My approach varies depending on the patient sitting in front of me, because when you start to do that contextual interview, you actually start to get a glimpse from the patient perspective of what they think is going on, right? Like if they think it's more medical and they're hitting it hard that way, and like they told me to come see you, but I don't know it isn't, right? Like, so then I already know, okay, I got I got to hit this another way versus the patient who might be like, well, you know, I've been under a lot of stress. And so I know, right. There's just a, a different way to me to approach it based on the individual sitting in front of you and where their mind has already decided it's going to go, which may or may not be wrong, right? Like again, cause we don't know, but it's interesting to me, the more this kind of team-based mind body connection is getting out there. So I'll just give a, quick story plug so I've been having problems with my Achilles and I'm like Lord I ain't got time to be having no surgery Jesus knows and so I'm in physical therapy right and and like he's telling me these exercises doing you know we're doing the exercise and all this stuff and he's like um you know uh, I don't know like how much you're into research but let me you know just tell you and so he starts telling me this research around how um there's these individuals who's they're in physical therapy but their symptoms got better without really getting physical therapy but just coming and having an opportunity to talk and he was explaining to me why they ask every patient that comes in like some random question i think uh this week the question was um what what's your favorite childhood cartoon or something um or would you rather your hand be in a box or your hand stuck in a box so they ask these random things right and so he's like you know that's why we ask that because the research just kind of shows that patients have gotten better without us really doing our physical therapy techniques and da 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 i know it kind of sounds strange and i'm like let me just tell you what i do because it doesn't sound strange right but i could see like because i was like oh that's an interesting question you know i'm talking it up because I can be a talker. And so I think he was like, oh, okay, so I can give her this because like she's engaging with me. So I do think like how you approach it with your patient depends on the patient in front of you. Some might need for you to come with it with the, oh, I could see, I could see why you think that. And maybe I just need to talk about how how you're doing emotionally can exacerbate that versus another patient who you might just have to explain, you know, it's kind of the which came first to chicken or the egg? We don't really know. Like sometimes it, it's both. Sometimes it's, you know, so I think it depends on the patient in front of you and and leaning into to that because most of the time 
patients have an idea. You know, I talk a lot with my learners, behavioral health and medical, about health beliefs and the perspectives that people have on their health. And usually when I first ask, especially physicians, about health beliefs, they're like, what do you mean? There's nothing to believe. It's science. It's either like we just we do medicine and are like, okay. <laughs> but there's a lot of things people believe about their health and believe about their problems. And there's also a big culturally bound aspect of that. We haven't talked yet about the personal characteristics of someone and their unique kind of personal and social identity and the way that affects their explanations and their beliefs about what's going on. But that's a part of the problem or not a problem, but just a part of the fabric of this communication as well. And someone's beliefs about whether their providers are going to listen to them or whether physicians will and the healthcare team can have an answer or whether they want to talk to a behavioral health person or what that means that their doctor thinks about them. So there's this very like deep, um, Naftali put in the chat, the story the patient is telling, um, which really helps with just what you're saying, Monica, that will steer us. There's a author that writes a lot about health and culture. I think she's retired now, but Jerry Ann Galanti, I'm sure a lot of people have read her work, but she has four C's that she encourages people to use when they're asking people about their health. And it's, what do you call this thing? Which can be helpful because some people call it like episodes or some people, you know, especially if they have this ambiguous kind of medical unexplained, what do they call it? What do they think is causing it? What do they think the cure is and what concerns them the most about it? Um, and those are really helpful questions because a lot of times the assumptions that we go in with as the medical team don't match with the patient's experience, just like along those lines of the contextual interview is going to tell us so much, but asking more specifically about this ambiguous health problem that they're having can also help us a ton. It, and it can give us a language to understand because we tend to assume that people think like we think. And unfortunately, that's definitely a terrible assumption um, because people think all kinds of different ways. And there's some a lot of data that says, you know, if, if you make a, a pinpoint your intersectional identity and make a list of, you know, your gender and your race and your cultural background and, um, you know, all of those different pieces that contribute to your intersectional identity, the more different points someone has, the more divergent their intersectional identity is from yours, the less you understand them. And yet we still continue to assume that people think like we think. And so then when they do something that's not what we would do, we start to blame them. We start to make all of these really negative attributions and assumptions and stereotypes about why that's happening. And then it furthers the schism of my team doesn't care about me, doesn't listen to me, doesn't have my best interests in mind. And so when there's no trust and we're telling them, we, you know, we're trying to be humble maybe and saying like, hey, we don't know. Medicine doesn't know. Let's focus on the function of this. Let's focus on what you can improve. If there's no trust there, that's going to come out like, you think this is all in my head and you don't want to help me. And maybe that's based in like some very real interactions they've had with someone in the past, or maybe it's something that we can adapt and change, which we need to be the ones that adapt and change as the people in the positions of power in the healthcare system. But it, all of that is relevant too. So I love those four C's. I think that's really helpful. And it's more about, you know, what is the story of what's going on? So powerful what you're saying. Love those four C's. I'm going to steal that. Had not heard that. Just to kind of add to that nuance, um, you know, part of what we have to understand is that 
we are culturally conditioned beings. So to your point of our the intersectionality of our different identities, right? So uh, for Hispanic patients, for example, uh, oftentimes when they are experiencing a particular stress response, it can look very much like a stroke. So they, they will talk about, um, you know, one-sided numbness, tingling, arm going dead or some weird sensation. I'll talk about something going down the their head, going down their neck, going down to their back. Um, they'll talk about uh, chest pain and chest pressure. And, uh, you know, that that's a, a reaction, right? Now, you could say, well, just, you know, Hispanic patients are like, they just overreact. I've heard some people say they just overreact to things like that. They're just so expressive, right? That they just, you know, and, and sort of kind of pathologize that as if that's not the right kind of response to have. What you don't realize is we are culturally conditioned animals. So it, it just is that in different cultures, your baseline neurology is trained in a different way. So if you grow up as a Latino, yes, and you experience stress, you're going to actually actually physiologically feel that differently neurologically than you are if you grew up in Japan or the United States, right? So the expression of what's happening, it's not just like just in your head. There's actual literal training that has happened physiologically for how different uh, experiences are expressed, both in terms of psychological phenomenon and physical phenomenon. And that is why it's important to have that cultural humility going into an encounter with a patient, because you do not, as you're saying uh, very well, Grace, you don't know. You can, And if you don't know, you tend to assume when you assume that other people think and act and should react like you do, uh, that's when you get into big problems. Well, I'm going to take this stretch. And some people might, I don't see it as a stretch, but I'm going to say for some people, it might be a stretch. In one point in time in the history of healthcare, the thought process was that African-Americans had tougher skin and could handle pain better. And so there are all these, you could see it, it's documented, all of these experiments and um, testing and all of these things that were done on African-Americans without um, measures for comfort. I'll say it that way to be politically correct, without measures for comfort, because people had preconceived notions about what African-American could or could not handle, right? And so to me, that sentiment is not too too far-fetched from the same thought process. Yeah, I guess, I guess what we're saying, I hadn't thought about this before, but like, you have to be very careful about implicit bias when dealing with a patient who's somaticizing. <laughs> That's, I've never I've never actually made that connection until now, but yeah. So just sit down somewhere and just do your contextual interview like you're supposed to do and be present in the moment. That's all we that's all we need you to do. That's all we need that's you to what do. I'm saying. What I'm Bridget, saying. Bridget has been so good. She's like, I'm not even gonna say anything. I'm not even gonna That's beautiful. Yeah, I mean, that's what we teach our trainees and including our medical residents is that 
Like, it's okay to not know. It's okay to say you don't know. It's okay that it could be a process to sit down with humility and genuinely, genuinely be curious about the person's life. Not curious so that you can get to the answer eventually, because that's like giving the charity to make yourself feel better. You will feel better if you genuinely volunteer your time and or money to something, then you will feel better. But if you do it to feel better, then it doesn't work. Same thing here. Like if you're just being curious so that they can tell you the answer, you can get there. Then it like you have to, I swear to goodness, and it takes some time, I think, developmentally. Uh, I think that's take time, taking time as a clinician. But when I walk into the room, I genuinely, like, I don't have any idea what I'm going to do. I have my core conceptualizations. I have my toolkits. I have all my knowledge base that lives in my brain. But I reserve that judgment until I talk to them. And it, then you pick and choose, like Monica, you were explaining, wh- how you're going to say this, how you're going to frame that. It's a scary place to be in for novice folks. So new BHCs, new medical residents. It's like a terrifying place to be in. But if you focus your energy on understanding basic human principles, focus your energy on, you know, these really core structures of knowledge base and then trust the process. Yeah, but that's all that all does take time. Uh, and for novice folks out there, if you're new, that's okay if you're freaking out right now. You will get there. It's it's a lifelong uh, practice. It does. And I find that really reassuring, honestly, because it, you don't have to be an expert. You know, if someone's coming in and we don't know what's causing their problem, you don't have to be an expert on functional neurological disorder to know how to help them. You don't have to be an expert on nightmares. You don't have to be an expert on diabetes. You don't have to be an expert on any of the things you should be an expert or work towards being an expert on humility and the contextual interview and all of these processes that we've talked about, but the content doesn't matter so much. And I find that deeply reassuring. And what I tell my beginning supervisees all the time and my physicians, all my residents, everybody is at the, at its base, you are a human being and a person going down to sit down with compassion and connection and to listen to this person's story and to offer some support along the way. And that in itself, because they're always like, I can't help them. I don't have anything to help them. I'm like you are the help. You are, you are the healing. This relationship is healing what, what you are going in with your humanity and your connection. That is what's needed in this moment. And I find that personally, I find that deeply comforting because that means what I need to do is cultivate my presence. I need to be calm in who I am and how I'm approaching the patient. I need to know that this is okay. We're okay. Like I'm not going in with the burden of making everything perfect because I sure can't do that. Uh, But I can sit with someone and I can connect with them and I can hold space for, for their pain. Um, And through that, I really believe that's where the healing and the change happens, no matter what we're talking about, which is great. Because back to what we said at the beginning, we don't really know what we're talking about with somatic problems. We don't know it's somatic. There are absolutely cases where somebody has been labeled as somatic their whole lives. And then all of a sudden they get an answer that explains everything, but we don't know. And so we have to hold what we don't know. There's entire categories of things we've made up like, like, like fibromyalgia, for example, like even like, and now it's, it's shifted. Um, and, and this is, I think something that would be interesting to culturally study. I don't know, Jen, in your practice or any of the other folks, but like, yeah. I feel like it's shifted from fibromyalgia 
to um oh gosh what's the um uh, there's like uh oh it'll come to me but it's some other similar sounding type thing that with a lot of vague symptoms mm-hmm. um uh lupus loop no not lupus but it's okay. like with tick tick disease uh related. oh lyme lyme disease lyme disease yeah yeah yes lyme that's disease. a huge yeah vortex of knowledge yeah, yeah yes it, came up clinically for me twice in the last week like yeah. literally it's lyme disease always questions. up here in connecticut as yeah. a, yep. like they're always talking yep. about lyme disease there's a big yeah. push yeah yeah and you Oof. attempt to be evidence-based and going up to date yeah. and it's like that's vague too and you're like what do i tell this person ah it's it's <laughs> tough <laughs> and i i think i think one of the things i don't want people out there to hear from our conversation because i, I may come across as sounding very confident and like oh this is so easy uh no <laughs> it's really hard it's it's hard to this is hard work it's hard to stay in that space that you were just talking about grace as a clinician um it's hard not to get into the fix it mentality like Mo- monica said um it's hard not to get into the avoidance like jen said um you know it, it is very difficult I, I can think of a couple of specific cases where and again somatization is a spectrum right i mean you, you can go from someone who's just like temporarily somaticizing or somaticizing in, you know, in very uh, sort of low impact ways on their life to all the way where you get someone with like pseudosiesis. I can never say that word, but basically it's someone who has, is somaticizing out of a delusion um, that they are pregnant. And I've had several patients uh, that have worked with our care teams on uh, with that issue. And it it is incredibly difficult to sit with someone who is convinced that they are pregnant and have all these somatic symptoms as a result of that, the cramping, the, the uh, bloating, the fears of, of bleeding and saying that they're bleeding, even though they're not bleeding, you know, all this stuff that, that revolves around that. And then still have a very curious patient centered contextual approach that's when you're really challenged to be in that space and and uh, work with that. So it is not easy. So don't expect it to be easy. You have to live into the complexity that the patient is experiencing. And then I think where I try to go to is just the functional piece. I try to think, what is what function does this serve in this person's life? How can I stay connected with this person to help them live their best life, even potentially in spite of of these uh, somatic symptoms. Um, yeah, so please don't leave feeling like this is supposed to be super easy and because it's not super easy for you, you're doing it wrong. That, that The functional piece that Neftali said is, is super good. I never get in arguments whether or not it is physical or mental. I take more of the approach that, well, you know, we don't know chicken or egg, like Monica was saying. We do know that if you're in this much pain, you're probably gonna feel stress. And we do know that stress can make pain worse. So that's fun. I normally say fun things like things like that. Like, well, that's fun uh, because, you know, demonstrating that humility and say, and, and that being said, while it's trying to get figured out, we still want you to have a meaningful life. And once you've done the contextual interview, you know, all the things that are super important to them and say, like, I think it's amazing that you're still working. I think it's amazing that you're taking care of your kids. I think it's amazing that you're still going to bingo on Mondays with your church group or whatever, uh, what have you, because, and then that's where you get so much buy-in because, they're like, well, yeah. And it's like, yeah. So regardless of what this is, we do, we know going to bingo with your church group is good. And they're like, yes. So how are we going to, so our time together, instead of trying to figure out what it is or what it isn't, we have all the tests happening. 
we're going to take that. It's going to be a process. What we can do in here is talk about how you can do as many of the things that you want to do as possible, given some of these symptoms. And so how can we navigate that? And then that's where we make our smart goals around like, what are they going to do while experiencing some of these symptoms? And it, the visit has a completely different feel when you go that route versus getting into an argument about what it is, what it isn't. Is it the trauma? Is it this? Is it that? And most of the time they end up telling you about their trauma if it is that. Um, and if it's not, then it's not. If, if you're on YouTube, you can see all of us shrug. <laughs> um, I, I I hate to wrap us up because this is such a fabulous conversation, but we are at the end of our time. I think there are so many nuggets in what we've talked about and a really difficult topic um, that I hope our listeners can take from this. Thank you all so much for just the wisdom that you've shared today and also the solidarity. So much comes from hearing like, it's not hard because you're doing it wrong. It's just hard because it's hard, but that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do. Uh, And so I hope that our listeners are leaving with that feeling too. We are going to go to a wonderful recorded ending from Deepu. May we be blessed with discomfort at easy answers, half-truths, and superficial relationships so that we may live deep within our hearts. May we be blessed with anger at injustice, oppression, and exploitation of people so that we may work for justice, freedom, and peace. May we be blessed with tears to shed for those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation, war, immigration, so that we may reach out our hand to comfort them and turn their pain into joy. And may we be blessed with enough foolishness to believe that we can make a difference in this world so that we can do what others claim cannot be done. Thank you. Thank you, Deepu. Thank you to my co-hosts. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll talk to you again next month. Mm-hmm.